My family on my father's side is from Lebanon. And when his family immigrated to the United States, Lebanon was still a part of Syria. So our family was among those considered the first wave of the Syrian uh, immigration colony in the West. In my Aunt Linda Jacobs book, Strangers in the West, she talks about my great-grandmother and her sisters going door to door, city to city in New York and then in other places in the East and then to the West of the United States. They were peddling jewelry and garments and silk sometimes playing up their exoticness to be noticed, to be more authentic, to make better sales, sometimes playing it down to fit in, to go about surviving undisturbed in this new country or to make better sales. In going through the archives at the Smithsonian, my aunt unearthed a story about two Syrian women presenting their wares to a customer. One of the peddlers breaks wind. The other elbow elbows her and says, what will this lady think of your manners? And the first peddler says, don't worry about it, she doesn't understand Arabic. <laughs> the women in that first wave of Syrian immigrants to the US were self-employed, freelancers, independent contractors, often the family's breadwinners. Stopping their sales for a day meant going unpaid. And as they sold goods door to door, they were also trying out places to live, ways to live, as one tries on dresses or shoes, looking for the right fit. They were, in every sense of the word, restless. My husband and I live in San Diego, as Gravity said, and we have two small kids. And as so many with young kids, we've struggled to maintain our sanity and a decent relationship um, while in the grind of regular child rearing. We're usually irritable and stained with their snot, paint, ketchup, blood. Um, once the kids are in bed, we stare at a screen and fall asleep in our seats, mouths open, drooling, just to be awoken in another few hours. <laughs> When we splurge on a babysitter, it's either because we're in fear of collapsing from exhaustion or falling out of each other's good graces, or both. Our babysitter is 18. She was born in San Diego, and she's the oldest of four kids. Neither her mother nor her father have legal status here. In the wake of the economic crisis in the 80s and 90s in Mexico, they came north, walking through the mountains in East County, San Diego, as so many do. Our babysitter's mother cleans homes for a living, and her father does landscaping. Both are self-employed. Neither work under or over anyone apart from their own kids who work alongside them at gigs. They work every day except Sunday. Our babysitter's mom tells us, smiling, we used to work every day, but I never saw my kids. We never had any time to be together as a family. So now we try to take Sunday off. We go to a restaurant or a friend's house for lunch. We go to the park, we go to the swap meet. We spend time together. Last January, as one of his first acts in office, um, as many of you probably know, Trump issued a series of executive orders on immigration. One banned all visitors coming from seven Muslim-majority countries. Another banned refugees coming from all over the world for four months, and refugees coming from Syria indefinitely. The final order provided for a dramatic increase in government spending toward enforcement, putting up a border wall and exponentially increasing arrests and deportations of those who do not have legal status here. The first two orders were sudden and had immediate and dramatic effects. And they somewhat overshadowed the third, at least initially. But it was in reaction to that third order that a man named Paul and his employer contacted me last year. Paul is in his 50s, from Mexico originally, and had come to the United States when he was just 16 years old looking for work. 
he founded in California's agricultural industry. He got married, he had two children, a daughter and a son with special needs related to cognitive delays. When the children were in elementary school, Paul and his wife divorced but shared custody of the children. Paul took his kids routinely after school as his schedule allowed him to spend the afternoons with them. He is working, or was working, as lead baker at a donut shop in East County, San Diego. He worked baker's hours, 11 p.m. to 8 a.m., then went home, showered, changed, and took his kids to school. He and the front manager of the donut shop, a blonde woman in her 50s, born and raised in San Diego, worked every night through dawn, through the busy morning shifts when groups of Immigration and Customs Enforcement agents would park their green and white vans outside and come in for their first cup of coffee. The donut shop was also in East County, San Diego, where a high range of orange hills separates the U.S. and Mexico, and where Border Patrol agents are always present. The manager chats with the ICE agents as they have their donuts and morning coffee. Whenever they were approaching the shop, the manager would signal to Paul, and he went to the back of the shop, sitting with the ovens, cleaning the equipment, and listening while the manager chatted. Paul should have been able to obtain legal permanent residence decades ago. When the 1986 amnesty went into effect, Paul was eligible because he worked in the agricultural industry part of the, or one of the groups covered by the amnesty. But at the time, he was young. He followed the harvest. He was never in one location for more than a few months. So when the notice for scheduling his interview back in the 80s was delivered to his home, he wasn't there to receive it. He later followed up with the office responsible for those applications and those appointments, but, his, uh, but to no avail. Nearly 20 years later, when Paul was in his 30s and had by that time lived in the U.S. longer than in his home country or in any other part of the world, he was placed in deportation proceedings. This time he was eligible for cancellation of removal, a defense against deportation. He met the requirements. He had been in this country for more than a decade. He had good moral character, i.e. had not committed any crimes after arriving in the U.S. And he had two U.S. citizen children, one with special needs which meant that Paul's being deported to Mexico would present exceptional and extremely unusual hardship to his family, another standard for that defense to deportation. But despite meeting the criteria for cancellation, the judge had denied his case. At that time, immigration judges used cassettes to record their judgments. When there was an issue with the proceedings, you could hear the screeching of the tape as they rewound the cassettes to play back excerpts of the record or to set the tape at the right spot in order to start recording the judgment. Paul tells me that after the judge gave the sentence, he shut off the recorder and turned to him. You should have brought in witnesses and other expert testimony about your son with special needs. You had some information, but you needed to be stronger. It wasn't represented well. You should appeal. Paul was unable to secure another lawyer for the appeal within the 30 days given to him before he was required to leave the U.S. He voluntarily departed on the day he was required to. He didn't know what to tell his son and daughter at the time, so he told them he was only going to be gone shortly. He made ends meet in Tijuana for several weeks, but when he heard that his son was regressing, a common effect of a change in routine for any child, 
but particularly for children with his son's type of needs, Paul decided to come back. He came back over the border, through the hills, resumed his life, but beneath the happiness at being reunited with his kids was the dread that he could be separated from them at any time. In the wake of the 2016 election and the executive orders, Paul decided he wanted to find a solution. He wanted to do what he could do to finally feel that he could work, drive, live, without constantly looking over his shoulder. He worked with his employer to pay the FOIA fees to request his old records from the government so he could reopen his case. And he waited. Our babysitter, Elena, and her younger sister, Eloise, are both petite and soft-spoken, and they both box. They regularly curl their long neon yellow press-on nails into their boxing gloves, climb into the ring of our local boxing gym, and face off against other teens, both boys and girls. Elena will soon start her first year at a university on the East Coast, a university well-known for their criminal justice program. After seeing stabbings on her street, after being herself a victim of sexual harassment, she says she is motivated. In her personal statement for college entrance, she says her dream is to work for the FBI. She refers to the recent election of someone who does not respect women or let us live in peace in the same breath as saying she wants to fight for justice. She and her sister are taught by their boxing coach to always keep moving in the ring, keep moving and keep an eye on the opponent. At one point, Elena leaves to visit her maternal grandmother in Mexico. Her mom tells us she wishes her other daughter, Eloise, could go too, but Eloise was born in Mexico. She was brought here as a baby and is in the same legal limbo as so many others. Just when Eloise turned 15, and became eligible to apply for DACA, the Deferred Action Program, which would have allowed her to have a social security number, and apply for college and travel to Mexico to visit her family, the program was thrown into jeopardy. With the election at first, and then months later, the program was terminated. Elena and Eloise's mom tell us it's been 15 years since she saw her own mother, and now she's fallen ill. She wishes she could visit her mother now, she came here to give her kids a better life, she says, but what kind of life, she wonders. Is it a life when you cannot know your own grandmother? When your mother is separated from her mother for decades? One morning, Paul's fiance, the manager from the donut shop with whom he's now engaged, leaves the donut shop before Paul so she can see her kids before they go to school. She and Paul have plans to go out for a meal at their favorite spot after his shift ends. She talks to him just as he's leaving the donut shop. As she drives to the restaurant thinking about her kids, about Paul, about the laundry she needs to do later in the day, she sees Paul's car pulled over on the side of the road. Not much was around there. Two stores right behind where his car was parked and another ways down the street. She stops her car behind his and gets out. She goes inside one of the stores. It's empty except for the cashier. She goes into the other stores, also empty. She calls Paul's cell phone, no answer. She peers into his car and sees empty seats. She goes back inside the first store. The cashier there tells her, yes, in fact, he saw two men come and take the driver of that car. They put him 
in an unmarked gray SUV, the cashier says. And then they drove off. Hours later, myriad frantic phone calls later, we were told by the agent at the downtown ICE office, no, you don't need to file a missing persons report. That sounds like our new special ops team got him. The Border Patrol Special Operations job posting I received in my email inbox says this. Apply for this exciting opportunity to strengthen the department's ability to protect the homeland. As a second line supervisory Border Patrol agent, you will serve as a secondary law enforcement officer and be responsible for, among other things, seeking out and apprehending aliens who are illegally in the United States. The new executive order that had called for the deportation of millions of nonviolent aliens was in effect. That afternoon, Paul is transferred to the detention facility in Otai. He'd voluntarily departed and then come back, so it would be very difficult for him to get bonded out of detention. He could be there in detention near the border for months, could even be over a year. It was a Wednesday. It had been Paul's day to pick up his son. When his now grown daughter, who works at the post office, tries to explain that their dad wasn't coming that day, her brother didn't believe her. He still has trouble with disruptions to his schedule. He is upset by even the smallest change in routine. That night, he sits on the couch waiting for his dad. He sits waiting all night. In starting to think about this talk, the first thing that came to mind were the labor rights struggles that have been waged over the past few centuries. Demanding sick leave, a cap on daily or weekly work hours, holidays, an official weekend. Um, what also came to mind were the struggles of the narrators in Invisible Hands, um, which I think we have some artwork that um, inspired that as well in my mind. Um, Invisible Hands is the compilation of oral histories from people working in the global economy, which was published in 2014 with uh, Voice of Witness. In that book, um, the narrators struggle for living wages or the freedom to organize and associate as that which Kalpona Actor, a world-renowned garment workers' rights activist, is leading in Bangladesh or the struggle to work and live without being exposed to toxic or fatal conditions, like the struggle Sanjay Verma is leading in the wake of the disaster in Bhopal, India, and that struggle which Ana Juarez and Martin Barrios are leading in the wake of the denim manufacturing industry in Tehuacan, Mexico, or that which Fausto Guzman and many others are leading in the California wine industry the right to have a break. What also came to mind, though, was the right to simply be, not so much a, a break from work, but um, the ability to rest without fear, to rest without fear of being pulled out of your job or without fear of being separated from one's family, a different kind of rest. There have been studies on mirror neurons, the phys physiology behind empathic responses, salivating when you see someone else take a bite of a sandwich, or experiencing depression and irritability, not as a result of going through trauma yourself, but as a result of just hearing about it. And there have been other studies that show that our nervous systems respond. Our heart rate speeds up, adrenaline is released, not only when we are in distress, but when we see that another person is. 
I sometimes wonder what kind of effect we experience living close to the border or living close to people working with others who are in distress themselves. A couple of months ago, I was with my kids at the park when I received another email through the Immigration Lawyers Listserv. ICE agents were conducting another raid in East County, San Diego. They had locked the gates of a large swap meet and were arresting those trapped inside without papers. Most were with their families. It was a Sunday. <laughs> 